What is up, plebs? Back with another great episode with Stack to the Future. I've been following Stat to the Future for a long time, and I'm super excited to share this conversation with you all. We begin by discussing politics of the information age and eventually explore Stat to the Future's views on Bitcoin. Stay till the end of the episode, or at least skip until the end, because Stat to the Future's views on government adopting Bitcoin are uncommon in the Bitcoin space and extremely thought-provoking. As always, looking for a new guest on the Bitcoin Plebs podcast. The purpose of the pod is to meet new Bitcoin friends, hear their views on the orange coin, and hopefully allow the plebs voice to be heard. The podcast is voice only and welcomes anyone and everyone who wants to chat Bitcoin. And lastly, remember the episode with my friend John from Only21Million.com? He just released some new merchandise designs that are beautiful. I'm rocking my magic internet money tee from his site. If you're in the market for Bitcoin merchandise or have a friend or family member whose birthday is coming up, check out his site in the description below. All right, enjoy this episode. Do not let the newsman train you how to see. Do not let the pundit train you how to feel. Do not let the teacher train you how to think. Do not let the preacher train you how to love. Do not let the banker train you how to value. Do not let Hollywood train you how to be. Do not let them train you. They were appointed by the powerful to teach you how to live in a world that is small. Too small for wild humans. Too small for humans who haven't been house trained, groomed, sprayed, and neutered, and taught parlor tricks. Like how to ignore life's intrinsic, breathtaking majesty. Too small for humans who perceive their own boundlessness, their own vast, unpredictable inner wildness, their own beauty, their own holiness, their own worthiness, their own innate equality with those holding their leash. So they train us. They train us to believe the world fits neatly into flat, finite, conceptual boxes, that life is predictable, that our nature is well-mapped, that we live in a 2D colorless cage from which there can be no escape and about which everything is known. So through narrative, could e- so though narrative could even touch this blazing cacophony, let alone encapsulate it. They are lying to you, my beloved. They are lying each and every time they open their pixelated mouths. This life is so much more than they will ever allow you to believe. So immense, so very unexplored, so very unpredictable, so very juicy, so very sexy, So very, very, very beautiful. The unknown unknowns dwarf the known unknowns, and the known unknowns dwarf the knowns. But they will never let you know this. So don't ask their permission. Take off that leash while appelling. Unblinker those eyes and unshackle those lades. Those chains are not there to protect you from the world, my beloved. 
They are there to protect your trainers from you. They are there to protect your trainers from you. I saw that poem uh, tweeted by Haruna, and it's written by Caitlin Johnstone. And I thought it was a sweet introduction to this episode I'm so excited for with Stack to the Future. How's it going, man? Yeah, really good. How's it going with you? Uh, Great. Yeah, I'm so excited for this episode. Um, I've been following, following you on Twitter for a long time. So... Um, awesome yeah I'm excited as well (laughs) sweet Um, so let's get right into it so I noticed on your Twitter a lot of it has to do with the information age Austrian economics and libertarianism which are three things that um, are part of the Bitcoin philosophy but um, I'm not super well versed in and especially not articulate in so I'm hoping we could discuss those things more in depth. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So first, can we start off by uh, defining the information age? Um, I mean, I guess I would define the information age as really since the internet. I mean, you, you could argue that the information age started before that um, with the advent of uh computers but i would say that it was more with the advent of personal computers and in particular once we're kind of all interconnected on the web uh, that's probably where i would say the information information age really begins yeah and i saw you retweeted american hodl saying uh bitcoin is guerrilla warfare warfare for the information age um so that's a loaded statement like so what what does the information age involve? Like, yeah, well, I mean, when I retweeted, the reason I thought that was uh, a really nice take was if if you kind of think about what we traditionally know as guerrilla warfare, normally what we're talking about is, for instance, when kind of a large army uh, wages war on a much kind of smaller, but I guess more. Um, a more tactical force. So you could think about something like the Vietnam War and the way that the Vietnamese um, fought against the Americans. It was guerrilla warfare in the sense that they were they were quite well connected. They they uh, were quite organised and they communicated well together and used um, tactics of kind of decentralisation in a sense to win that war. Um, you know, it was very much kind of small groups and. Um, using what they had at their disposal, in particular their environment, um, in order to kind of win against this much greater military power. So I thought that uh, what American Hoddle said there in terms of um, Bitcoin being um, kind of guerrilla warfare for the internet age is that's kind of what we're doing, right? Like what we're doing is we're using the tools at our disposal um, that are afforded to us by the internet and we're kind of waging war really with central banks. And, um, you know, the central banks, essentially, they've got a blunt tool, uh, which is the money printer. And what we have is a group of uh, decentralized individuals who uh, use a variety of tools that we can all independently use in order to kind of come together and do our damage to that system. 
uh, which has kind of been oppressing us for years. So that's uh, that's how I see it. That's how I interpret the that tweet. And um, yeah, I think it's a really like interesting take. Yeah, it's definitely like compelling. Um, and the information age involves like breaking down the state um, or maybe not the state, but these um, old systems of organization we used to require because um, because we didn't have a better way to protect their wealth or protect ourselves against others. But now we have different ways, you know, without the central authority um, to organize ourselves, you know, in economics with decentralized currency, um, with you're breaking down the barriers of education, you know, with the internet. And it, to me, it's, it means a freer society, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, what, what we're ultimately doing is we're, we are taking on a kind of legacy system that has a lot of entrenched power and we're never going to win uh, using the same tools that they've used. I mean, you know, we, we can't, um, we can't just kind of take the, the money printer and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to try and do this ourselves, And we're going to, you know, have some kind of conglomerate of, of uh, corporations that are going to try and do whatever that, that is just going to, first of all, get shut down immediately. And all you're doing is replicating that centralization. So, you know, we've kind of taken it from the ground up and said, okay, what are the tools that we, we have? And, you know, what most of us have and soon the whole world will have is kind of either a, a personal computer or a mobile phone even, or uh, some kind of like device um, and an internet connection. And really that's what Bitcoin is doing is it's taking that and saying, okay, how do we build on top of that? And then, um, you know, and it's not just Bitcoin, like this is happening with um, everything else. As you said, it's happening with education. It's happening with communication. It's happening with kind of social networks and things. Um, what I love about Bitcoin in particular is that because money is um, so important. I mean, you could even argue that money is more important than uh, something like uh, social networks. That's definitely an argument you could have. And we've built it up from a point of saying, we are absolutely never going to compromise on centralization. And that is why Bitcoin, you know, beats out all of these other cryptocurrencies uh, every single time is because we have done it from that absolute first principle of saying we're never going to compromise on decentralization. Um, you know, we're not going to um, say, okay, we want better throughput and we want, you know, quicker transactions and things. It's not about that at all. What it's about is keeping something so decentralized that it is impossible um, for it to be kind of co-opted. Right. Yeah. And I find this so fascinating to learn about and talk about right now, because like, I feel like in real time, we're witnessing, you know, the breaking down of these like traditional, like monopolies of power, you know, like, and you're seeing resistance to it, you know, like free communication, like maybe there's some resistance there. Um, certainly like freer money where people opt into the money they choose, you know, that benefits them the most. Um, and we're seeing so much resistance to this by the state and uh, like corporations and so many other things. It's, it's fascinating.
right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that this, there's a really pertinent example uh, in the past couple of days as well. I don't know if you've been following everything that's been going on with uh, GME and the whole kind of Wall Street bets um, thing that's been happening where, they, you know, they've essentially, um, you know, got a bunch of people together who has essentially kind of taken out a hedge fund um, you know, through kind of communicating and through using their own tactics against them. And, you know, what you've seen as a result is, I think already the discord's down. I'm not sure if, I think the, the Reddit might still be up now, but there's certainly, uh, I, I personally am not even sure whether the Reddit will stay up. And this is a bunch of people who have come together and essentially done what the hedge funds have been doing to everyone else uh, for decades right. and used it against them. And, um, the, you know, they're, but they're operating on centralized platforms. And when they get taken down, which they eventually, in my opinion, they eventually will, because this is what happens when the entrenched powers actually uh, come together and try and make things happen. They find the point of centralization and they get them shut down. Um, I mean, you know, we've seen this with kind of Twitter censorship and everything else. And uh, I think that a lot of these people, if Wall Street bets uh, kind of does end up um, getting shut down, uh, a lot of these people are gonna say, well, you know what, like, you know, where do, where do we go? Like, what is our option? If we want to take on these entrenched powers and stop getting screwed over by them, where do we go? And I think uh, a lot of them will find their way into Bitcoin because what they're going to realize is everything they're doing now, trying to, trying to do on, on Reddit and, you know, essentially using um, these tools which are uh, like liable to centralization, they're going to say, well, wait a second, you know, you've got this decentralized system over here that's taking on the entire central banking system, which is, which is the kind of base layer of all of the corruption. And I, I hope, and I believe that a lot of them will end up finding their way into Bitcoin at some point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've found the wall street bets, um, GameStop thing so fascinating, you know, they're basically giving the, middle finger to you know the hedge funds that well maybe that's strong language but it seems like it, it's super cool to see communities of people you know coming together and you know um resisting well i i don't know um but something i wanted to get into before we get into the bitcoin and austrian economic stuff is this libertarian stuff um, that's on your Twitter. Um, do, do you think it's a, it, so like we have access to technologies that will decentralize and, um, kind of dissolve these like traditional power structures. Um, but do you think that's like a moral thing or something that we should fight for? Um, or is that just something that's happening? Yeah, I think that it's probably uh, both. I mean, I think that it's an inevitability that these tools are going to um, essentially act uh, in a way that chips away at the state. Because when you, you know, the, many of these tools are essentially um, serving some of the state functions and or functions that I guess were kind of walled off by the state in some way, and they're going to chip away at that. Um, and I also think that, that morally it's a good thing as well. Um, like, I think that especially in the year 2020 and 2021 that we're in now, um, that the state has kind of exposed itself um, in a very kind of real way 
and um, I, I think that these tools are kind of more necessary than ever and in particular um, when it comes to Bitcoin the ability uh, for us to truly be in control of our own money and have something that is um, it's essentially democratized money in a way you know we are voting on our own money by by deciding on the consensus rules and uh, you know uh, running a node which reflects those rules uh, and will reject uh, blocks which don't comply with them um, that is kind of true democratization and I think that you know to, to try and compare that um, to what we had before just saying okay well we're just going to vote in a vote in a new party every every four years or whatever and um, and that's going to be how we do democracy um, well you, that just is not fit for the 21st century that's not how um, democracy I think is going to go on what's going to go on is we're going to use these digital tools and we are going to be you know, essentially voting democratically every single day, uh, like, every, you know, or in the case of Bitcoin, every 10 minutes, every 10 right. minutes that my node uh, rejects or accepts a block, I am voting on the rules of an economic system. Now, um, that is much better than voting every single four years. <laughs> like that is just, you know, um, obviously a huge, huge quantum leap forward. And uh, Bitcoin is one example. And obviously it's the one that uh, myself and I assume you are most interested in but I think that we're going to see more and more of this going forward and I think the internet is going to disrupt many of these uh, ways that democracy has previously operated and it's going to be democracy in its truest form I mean some people don't call it democracy because they don't they don't you know they think that democracy is a bit more of a, a loaded term and a lot of kind of you know really hardcore ANCAP types wouldn't use that word but I think that in a way it's, it's almost kind of pure democracy in the sense that you are continually voting um, on the system you are uh, you want to live in, essentially. Yeah, and these like philosophical discussions that happen in the Bitcoin space, just like this, you know, they're so fascinating to me to me to listen and read about, and um, I try and talk to people my age, you know. Uh, college age people, 20 to 25. And, you know, when I start to talk about these ideas, the biggest um, objection people bring up is, um, you know, if you let people have, um, you know, if you democratize money and basically you um, dissolve these structures of power then who's going to make sure that you know that we don't mount the ice caps you know <laughs> or who's going to make sure that um everyone's taken care of in society you know pe people it's like if everybody were left to themselves and it was truly a free society yeah. like that the information age may bring would that really be a better thing you know because it's like the tragedy of the commons, right? Um, people, if there's a big communal scene that, um, like the air quality, you know, as an individual, if it massively, it, you're economically incentivized to um, not regulate carbon emissions and, um, and you just move. My, my question is, like, do we need the governments and these traditional structures of power to make sure that um, 
everyone's treated fairly, maybe not fairly, but that we're in a better society, you know? What, what I'm trying to express, these are hard things for me to talk about. Yeah, I mean, ultimately these tools are gonna kind of put all of that into question because like we said before, if there is a kind of inevitability um, that these things uh, continue to uh, challenge the state, you, you know, then we're ultimately going to have to start saying, okay, you know, is this, is this, is this a good thing? Is this the right thing? But I think that, um, I think that what the internet allows us to do um, is to kind of have that level of organization um, between people, uh, which, you know, is something we didn't have before, you know, prior, prior to that, really the, the way that society was organized was through kind of government and, and these power structures coming together. And I think with the internet, that's allowed us to kind of come together, um, each on an ind individual level can kind of um, tap into this network and can kind of um, formulate uh, rules and share ideas and all the rest of it. And I think that, that fundamentally um, is a better way of operating. Um, with what you were saying about things like, uh, you know, are we gonna kind of melt the ice caps and things like that? I mean, the answer, I think, is, well, I, certainly my answer is, I don't know. I mean, without governments, <laughs> yeah, like, is, like, are we going to kind of go down the route of, oh, well, you know, we have no one to, to kind of, we have no power structure to come together and tell us not to do it, so therefore, uh, are we going to kind of just ruin the world, etc. I mean, I think really, um, although my answer is I don't know, I think that uh, there are a lot of answers from the kind of libertarian camp as well um, in terms of how the current way that things operate um, with kind of the governments operating in a kind of top-down effect is actually leading to a lot of these uh, essentially uh, quirks which wouldn't happen in a true kind of capitalist system. Um, the example is often used about things like um, you know, public ownership of forests and things, and that if, if they're owned by uh, the, the commons or whatever, then individuals or, or, or essentially the people who are kind of uh, using that, uh, those trees for commercial pr uh, purposes, if they're not owned by them and they don't have a lot kind of long-term um, outlook and they don't need to kind of continue to, to grow trees and produce timber, for example, um, that they're more incentivized to quickly use up that um, that land because they don't know who the next government's going to be. Maybe the next government's going to say you can't you can't um, chop the fir tin, uh, timber or whatever it is. So there are um, arguments to be had for the kind of true uh, kind of anarcho-capitalist society being more incentivized for kind of long-term, um, essentially the kind of long-term prosperity and not operating on short-term. Uh, time horizons because you have to think about the future more and uh, you know you, you can't just plunder resources in the same way and then kind of move on to the next one and hope the state kind of resolves it. Uh, I think that there's validity to those arguments but you know I, I also think um, there's validity to arguments to be said okay you know should there be kind of rules about what we can and can't do. Uh, I guess my question would be uh, how should those rules be implemented should it be that you just uh, have essentially kind of a government that people vote in who goes around dictating all the rules or could you do it on a kind of more community level and have these rules 
um, applied by people's peers, um, you know, because governments didn't always exist, right? I mean, like, you know, before governments, we were doing okay. Okay, you could argue, well, we didn't have the technological capacity to ruin the world. So, um, so, so since you have the technical capacity to, to ruin the world, you need a government. But you could also argue, well, since you have the te technological capacity to kind of organize um, using these technological tools, that actually those same tools kind of render governments obsolete, you know, at the same time. So yeah, we have more capacity to destroy the world, but we also have more capacity to not require a centralized government authority to prevent that. You can still organize um, mutually on a kind of peer-to-peer -peer basis and do things in a voluntary sense. So I, I guess where I sit on that kind of, on that kind of libertarian uh, scale, I'm not sure that I'm at, uh, you know, kind of a hundred percent anarcho-capitalist at this point, because I still think that I have questions myself to kind of thrash out when it comes to that. But um, yeah, certainly, certainly I would say that I'm pretty close. I, I recently read the, the book. I don't know if you've, um, read it, it's called A New Liberty by Marie Rothbard. And uh, I would definitely recommend that book, which kind of goes goes into quite a lot of these ideas and kind of explains how, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it uses the term uh, libertarian, but I think most people would use the term anarchist now because I guess libertarianism has been, has got a bit more of a soft touch, whereas anarchist really is more um, total kind of pure uh, zero government. And that's, that's the kind of world it's describing. And it goes through a lot of these issues and explains how they could be achieved um, purely through essentially anarcho-capitalism as opposed to like state um, government, um, like top-down organization. Right. Yeah. That, that's super fascinating to me. And I'll definitely read this book because these types of topics have been on my mind recently and <laughs> I don't see them being discussed in the community as much as some other things. Um, another question I had is, it takes one of the ethos of Bitcoin is don't trust verify. And I feel like it takes some level of contrarian thinking, especially like, do you mind saying how long you've hodled for? Like what year you've started getting into Bitcoin? No, not all. So uh, for me, um, 2016 was my kind of entry point. Um, I mean, essentially, do, do you want to know my? Do you want? Do you want me to kind of go into the my kind of Bitcoin origin story? Or? Um, I'm happy to do it if you want to. No, I just yeah. didn't know whether that's yeah. I was just uh, leading into. I was wondering yeah. what, what if there's any factors in your life that predisposed you to, um like being able to think in this contrarian way, you know, uh, for so long, you know, to huddle Bitcoin for so long, you've got to go against everybody for so long and to question the establishment and the Fed and everything you learn in high school economics and any other economics class, it takes some level of contrarian thinking to reach these conclusions. And in my life, I can, think back to, um, I was raised Mormon and losing my faith was a very difficult thing to me. And it, I didn't even feel like a choice. It felt like a, just a, a full 180 worldview. And it's like, everything I knew has been a lie. And ever since, you know, having that experience and 
having realizing that things in my life <laughs> that I assume to be true may not be, I, I feel like it kind of predisposed me to um, learning about Bitcoin and um, before it was cool, you know? And I was wondering if there's any factors in your early life that may predispose you to uh, your contrarian thinking or Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you bring that up, actually, because um, I, I kind of put, posted a, a tweet thread the other day, which uh, I was just kind of transcribing something that Nick Carter had said on um, the Orange Pill podcast. And he was talking exactly about this and basically saying how, how kind of, you know, you have to be a contrarian thinker to be a Bitcoiner. And I absolutely agree with that. So kind of when you're describing, um, like, the fact that you essentially uh, were kind of leaving the your the, the Mormon faith and things like that. Um, I think the, the kind of people who are, who are, who are open-minded and who are contrarian and who are willing to question their own beliefs and, and the things they've believed before, they're very, um, they're much more likely to be Bitcoiners, I think, than people who don't really question those things. And um, I, I actually had a similar thing uh, myself before getting into Bitcoin. I was kind of very, very... Um, I mean, I would describe myself as socialist. I, I, I think that now, now that I know more about socialism, I'm not sure whether that was particularly accurate, but I used to be very, you know, kind of pro uh, like welfare state and, you know, high taxation for the rich and all the rest of it and more kind of like wealth distribution and things like that. And, um, and actually when I kind of um, got into Bitcoin, a lot of those um, ideas started to change. Um, you know, I started kind of recognizing that there was a lot of flaws in them. Um, but I was always open for them to change. I mean, I was not um, by any means like hostage to those views. I was I was completely willing to um, change them. And then once I got into Bitcoin, I started kind of being exposed to these new ideas and recognizing that um, a lot of them just didn't hold much weight. And actually uh, this idea of, um, you know, essentially Bitcoin is, is some form of kind of uh, voluntarism and the, you know the, the, the concept really is that you own um, you own your private keys and nobody else owns them and nobody else can get them and you have um, you know if you've if you've done the mining for instance and you get the reward then you own those keys and if you want to sell for a price then you sell but essentially that whole process from from the, the very kind of like mining of the Bitcoin uh, through to going on to exchanges through to transactions everything is a purely free market and um, I think that, that uh, in a way, is the most pure free market we've got. And the more that I've kind of gone down the road of these ideas is that, you know, everyone is making a voluntary contribution um, in that world. And uh, yeah, it just changed, changed a lot of my ideas. I'm not sure if that answered your question, but. Uh... Yeah. And then also, I always find it so interesting to hear Bitcoiners origin stories. You mentioned that earlier. Do you mind going into that a bit? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, really for me, it was 2016 was uh, obviously the year, the big, a big year in the UK because we had uh, Brexit that year. We had the Brexit referendum. Um, and uh, yeah, when, when all this was going on, um, I kind of uh, started seeing, you know, obviously the, the economy was kind of pretty rocky. And um, right. at that time I'd been, you know, I was kind of, getting into investing and things like this. And uh, I was pretty kind of 
um, annoyed really that the the pound had taken a big tumble and you know I kind of got into investing and I was like oh you know like the the currency's down and this that and the other and um and uh, along a similar time I kind of started I, I was thinking a bit about um about you know how I could kind of reallocate my money and could I put it into other currencies and things and I saw a um I saw something come up on uh Facebook and it said it was just an ad and it said um, bitcoin is now less volatile than the british pound i thought oh okay that's interesting and uh, and things like that so it was it was it was on my radar at that point and i was thinking about it but the thing that really pushed me kind of to actually buy bitcoin was the dark web and uh which you know i think at that point it's funny now um that i don't hear many people getting into the dark web but i think probably 2016 was around at the end of that point where the dark web was an entry point and uh for me i i discovered the dark web and i'd you know i kind of uh was uh like on the markets things like that and you know uh, i wanted to like buy some drugs off the dark web and bitcoin was um Bitcoin was the the thing that was used and I thought oh, okay Bitcoin you know there's this this thing that like I'd kind of I knew about it and I was like oh you know I've heard about this thing and apparently it's pretty stable and things like that because I'd seen this ad and it was on my mind I was like okay you know this is the second time I've come across this like I'll I'll buy some and then I'll go down this road a bit so I bought some initially with the intention of getting uh, some Bitcoin uh, to use on the dark web and uh, I used some of the Bitcoin to uh, on the dark web um and then i still had a remainder in there um that I, you know i think i well initially when i got it i i was using local bitcoins this is before local bitcoins was kyc so i wouldn't use or recommend local bitcoins now um but at that point uh you know i i kind of learned how to keep the uh the bitcoin completely clean from my identity and you know i was using pseudonyms and i was in, in fact to get the bitcoin i posted money like i posted cash literally in an envelope to someone in Scotland, uh, and they deposited Bitcoin to an account. So I, I really went kind of fully in on on the privacy aspects. Um, so I got the the Bitcoin, you know, used the dark web a little bit, and I thought, okay, I'll I'll keep the rest in there um, because I'll just see see what happens. Because you know, apparently this this currency is doing all right, and you know, like why why? But well, I'm not, I'm in no rush to change it back to the British pound. So I kind of kept it there, and then uh, like a few months passed, and we were kind of. Uh, having a ball run. I think it was, it was probably, I'm not sure if it was late 2016 or early 17 that we started having a, a bull run. And um, yeah, it just, the, the, the value kept sky kind of, kind of was going up. And then next time I came to it and I wanted to use the dark, you, you know, use it on the dark markets again. I was like, wow, you know, I, I started with, I think it was 60, 60 pounds on this thing. And I'd spent yeah. about, I think I'd spent about 20 to 30 of it. And then I went back and I was like, this is up to like a hundred now. So, you know, I yeah. spent a little bit and then, you know, and then I, I, the same thing happened again. I think I ended up use like getting four uses out of it, but at some point in down, down that path, I just thought, you know what, like, I'm not going to use these coins. I'm not going to kind of uh, use these coins uh, in any way that's associated with my identity. I don't want to kind of, you know, put them in the, in my same huddle stash ones I'm getting on, off an exchange. But uh, yeah, during this point, I think it was probably late 2016, um, I kind of created an account on Coinbase and and uh, said, okay, right, I'll buy some, you know, that are KYC'd and buy them at a yeah. better price and all the rest of it and just huddle. And then I did. And, uh, you know, it just went really well. And I just kept buying um, into early 2017. And 
the price kept going up and uh that was that i was i was kind of hooked and then at that point i i just kind of started going really down the rabbit hole hole of uh of the kind of technological aspects and how it was working and i mean 27 was a pretty right. crazy year so there was a lot to take on i i think that it's much easier now to get into bitcoin because the narrative is much more kind of obvious and clear but in 2017 there was you know, there was so many things going on that year that i was trying to wrap my head around and you know we had the kind of fork wars and everything and i was like god oh, you know like who do, who do i believe here is is uh you know I, there was the segwit 2x thing going on that i was trying to trying to kind of get my get my head around and all the rest of it so it was pretty wild year i was just listening constantly to to podcasts and reading about it to try and truly understand it but one you know the more you go down the rabbit hole of bitcoin it's like i just haven't found an end to it yet as you go down you just getting you just get more and more sucked in and uh it's just like just when you think you've kind of reached the the bottom level another level opens up and you realize that you know, it's even more <laughs> profound than you thought <laughs> right yeah it's crazy so what exactly changed bitcoin from an investment decision to like now i'm fully orange pilled you know like what was the thing that changed it from thinking oh i will earn more pounds to oh i need to stack more sats because i believe in bitcoin you know yeah so i think um for me it was really uh it was last year i mean i was i've been accumulating for for quite a while but like in all honesty during the the bear market after the kind of 2017 crash i didn't accumulate at all of those really low levels i started accumulating mm -hmm. again um in 2020 after that crash um i was like okay um you know it crashed and i i, I really felt like in that during that march crash um Whereas before in the previous years, I'd been kind of worried about it during that March crash. I didn't feel like there was a sentiment of there being blood on the streets at all. I thought that everyone recognized, okay, the stock market's crashed. Uh, the whole crypto market's crashed. Um, it's going to come back. And at that point, I, I was thinking, okay, I want to put money into this because uh, everything's crashing. And I was starting to, to kind of really um, feel that Bitcoin was going to be a big play coming up because you know the um after stocks had crashed and then the money money printer started going burr and i just thought you know this is this is just going to continue to compile now and bitcoin's going to have this narrative of sound money is going to be unstoppable because the central banks are not going to be able to recover from this so i bought after that crash i waited for it to kind of just have a bit of a rebound and then i started buying again and really since i think bitcoin was around about since it recovered to around about six thousand dollars um i was just putting um a lot of money into bitcoin I, I i really you know i mean i'm not complete i'm not absolutely all, all in yet but i certainly own a lot more bitcoin now than i do um anything else it's a, it's a much bigger share of my portfolio and i am constantly thinking about stacking sats now that is um the aim and everything that i'm earning i'm i'm you know immediately converting it um at least a a, a pretty decent proportion of it to btc and i for me, the reason is just because I think that it's pretty clear that um, central banks have lost control. And we've been looking at this for a long time as Bitcoiners, we've been watching it. Uh, but before we were kind of these crazy people, you know, kind of, um, you know, shouting um, out there, you know, these almost like those, uh, those disaster movies you see where you've got the haggard old man who's kind of screaming about, you know, that everyone's going <laughs> to yeah. die and we need to run. Like Bitcoiners have been those right. people for 
a good kind of 11 years. And then really, I, I felt like 2020 hit and people started listening. Right. And, um, and I definitely felt like the narrative changed. And although everyone's not on board yet, whereas, you know, saying that currency collapse is an inevitability and we need to start protecting our assets, that used to be kind of a bit of a, an outlandish thing to say. And now I think that's becoming much more of a mainstream conversation. You've got much, many more kind of mainstream people who are um, coming on board with that narrative. And I think we're, even now we're still ahead of the curve, but I think that it's, it's pretty clear central banks have lost control. And, um, and uh, my, I guess my faith in, the, in Bitcoin, whereas before it was, in a sense, my like Bitcoin was somewhat of a hedge and it was, you know, I wanted it as part of my portfolio, but it wasn't um, what it, I didn't, I guess, believe that it would necessarily be more successful uh, than a traditional currency. I didn't necessarily believe it would outlast the dollar, for instance. It was more, okay, well, what if? And now I actually think that, you know, I feel more nervous about having my money in cash than I do in Bitcoin. You know, I trust the <laughs> network and I right. kind of believe right. that if you do trust the network and you trust the development, you trust the protocol, um, you know, ultimately uh, that's what you do. Like, obviously some people are going to think I'm crazy that, you know, I have so much uh, money in Bitcoin and okay, well, why don't you sell and why don't you diversify, et cetera. But, you know, I have done my own uh, research and my own assessment and I feel like the best um, place for my money is in Bitcoin. Oh yeah. I always, so I'm a more new Bitcoiner. I got in in 2019 and I, I've been learning about it every single day since. Um, and I always find it so fascinating when I get to talk to someone who was in Bitcoin during the fork, uh, the Segwit wars. And it seemed so traumatic and people had to fight for the, for the decentralization aspect of the currency rather than the bigger blocks. And I was wondering um, if there's like lessons you learned from that or if you foresee something similar happening in the future or anything that we could talk about that would help newer people like me um, you know, in advance to something like a 2017 fork war where the community splits and there's so many narratives and there's lots of FUD, you know, I can't even imagine what that would have been like, right? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a difficult time. I, I kind of, what I kind of get the impression with uh, what happened with the fork wars is that a lot of the kind of OGs, um, for, for them, it wasn't even a consideration when everything was happening with 2x and and uh and then subsequently with the kind of bitcoin cash fork a lot of the ogs were just very they 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 didn't even pay too much attention to it they you know for them it was just so obvious but for someone kind of new coming in it was very difficult at that point i was you know mainly on kind of reddit for my information and i was on the rb our bitcoin and things like that and then there was the rbtc kind of rival reddit and they were both had completely different narratives and a diff a completely different you know series of events in history and everything and it was very difficult to kind of wrap your head around um i actually think that that's kind of behind us now at one point when i think bitcoin cash for and then we had bitcoin Di uh, bitcoin diamond and uh there was also like the bitcoin sb yeah yeah all, all of this stuff and, and at one point people you know i think really after the first fork happened and then a bunch of other people tried to fork as well 
I think it became clear like, well, you know, this is just not going to be a thing. Um, you're never going to be able to kind of take the, the Bitcoin brand with you or be Bitcoin because ultimately, you know, people, people want something which is truly decentralized, um, which is the best store for their wealth. I mean, in my opinion, anything that, anything that is not going to challenge uh, the central banks is, is never going to be um, kind of accepted by the community. So any change you try to make, which is going to uh, make it more vulnerable, to taking on the central banks is never going to be accepted by the community. So I actually think, although the fork wars have happened and I'm sure there will be a fork in the future, I don't think that it will be any time in the near future. And I don't think that it will be as contentious as any, any of the ones that have come previously. I think that you're going to, you're going to have a, a bit of a gradual, um, you know, people are going to um, just come to Bitcoin. And I actually think that a lot of uh, these other coins are going to capitulate and recognize that, you know, we kind of really have one shot at this. I mean, I, I guess in terms of what you're saying about uh, a risk going forward, one of my risks, uh, sorry, one of my, uh, the things I believe to be a, a risk going forward is that a lot of the kind yeah. of new people coming in, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put 2019 or 2020 or 2021 Bitcoins in this category at all, but I'm talking people who are, who are probably not going to get in this cycle, who might get in next cycle or possibly the cycle after that. Um, is whether they will kind of, you know, bring with them um, essentially fiat thinking <laughs> for, for, you know, <laughs> for lack of a better term. I mean, I think right now we have an incredibly uh, strong community of people who are thinking about Bitcoin in a very, very um, robust way. And part of my, my concern is, you know, will Bitcoin be able to stand having a lot of people come in who don't necessarily share the philosophy or the ideology. You know, people who come in and think that it's a good idea to redistribute wealth and all the rest of it. Like, are those people going to end up kind of coming into the community and then saying, hey, you know what, now we want to redistribute wealth from the top uh, wallets and give it to all the bottom wallets, for instance. You know, could you potentially have, um, how, how, how would I even term it? It's almost like, um, yeah, it's almost kind of like a yeah. tyranny of yeah. the masses at some point. Um, I don't believe that will happen because I think that, you know, ultimately, you know, what matters is the people who are running the nodes make that decision. But um, I, but also, you know, that Bitcoin has value from the fact that, you know, your, your, your kind of wealth is protected and that your keys are your keys and nobody can kind of just take the value from them. So I do think that, um, down the line, it will be very difficult to change. Although I think that these these conversations will happen, I think that you will end up, you know, even as we're going to have Bitcoinization, I don't think it's just going to be all, um, you know, kind of like everyone ha kind of happily, you know, dancing around holding hands. I think that there's going to be a lot of people who say, no, we need to change it because we need to make it more, you know, we need to have some level of inflation, or we need to, you know, take from the top wallets and give to people who are who have who have not got as much Bitcoin and redistribute the wealth and. I don't think it will take hold, so I'm not too worried about it, but I certainly think those conversations will will inevitably happen. Yeah. Something I've been more worried about, I've heard other Bitcoiners talking about this, is a potential um, like privacy war. Like if there's whitelisted coins and blacklisted coins and um, you have people like institutional investors and retail investors and people who buy through um, very like mainstream exchanges that um, are in it for the investment. Um, and then you kind of lose the 
the what's the right word you know the money that anybody can use because um now you have whitelisted coins blacklisted coins and people fight against um like specifying you can only use bitcoin for this purpose i i've heard a lot of bitcoiners talk about that fud and you know to me it sounds real realistic you know if a lot of coins are controlled by hedge funds and retail investors and um, those people comply with the government's regulations you know if they want whitelisted coins or they want to track every transaction do, do these types of things worry you at all um yeah i mean I, I i've been kind of thinking about this a little bit recently as well like how how would that play out like could you have a kind of two-tiered system whereby some coins have uh, gone through the kind of kyc route and some not personally i think that this is just a uh, a technological um thing that will be solved i mean you know it's very difficult to kind of keep a, a trail of kyc coins and you and you have things like coin mixing now right. which is becoming increasingly popular and i think that all it's going to take is just people recognizing ah, okay you know there's this issue with kyc coins being preferable we'll just coin mix and there'll be people who coin mix their kyc coins with non-kyc coins and all the rest of it and you know the miners are gonna re are just gonna mine any transaction um they are incentivized to mine all transactions they're not incentivized to to not mine certain transactions the only way they could be stopped from mining a transaction is if, if a government you know essentially goes in there and kind of puts a gun to their head and says you can't mine a transaction from this uh you know you can't mine this or that transaction essentially um but I think that given that we have enough de decentralization in mining and that um, I just don't think that that's kind of realistic. So I think that transactions will always be mined in terms of exchange, you know, people accepting them. You could argue, okay, will a merchant accept, um, you know, Bitcoin that's not been KYC, et cetera. I mean, we have to remember that even KYC coins, um, they're only one half hop away from not being KYC. Um, I mean, a government can try and claim that they, that, you know, a government can try and claim, okay, well, we had this, this KYC, you know, Bitcoin address on this exchange, and then it's been right. set to, sent to this address. Uh, so therefore, those coins belong to this person. But that's completely false. That's the government trying to use their kind of legacy mechanisms and apply it to the Bitcoin network. That's just not true. Um, as soon as they've moved um, address, they're essentially, you can no longer um, claim that they still belong to the, that original holder. So you actually have no idea. Uh, the government has no idea, and they're going to have to be making up definitions to try and KYC the Bitcoin network because it's just unKYCable in a sense. Um, and you know that combined with coin mixing, I really think that it's not a huge uh, concern. And then also to to add to that, you've got the privacy of the Lightning network, which is going to be a big factor. Um, yeah coming up yeah and, and it already is really and that is going to take so many transactions um off the the main chain and they're going to be even more private so it's i don't think it's a huge worry i mean i do think that we will see things like that because i believe the governments are going to use every single tool at their disposal to try and stop this thing um the problem is they actually don't have a tool which is gonna um actually get to actually do the damage that they want to do because they're fighting with 20th century tools, a 21st century network, um, which is digital and which is, you know, has encryption at its core and short of breaking SHA-256 encryption, they're going to fail at every point in my view. 
Wow. Yeah. So to me, that se that seemed like a very important thing to be thinking about. Um, but yeah, that explanation helps me think about new things. So is there something that does worry you or conversations you think we do need to be having in the space that um, are more pressing than these types of concerns? I mean, for me, the the thing which I think we should be talking about more, and I think um, a lot of people don't like to admit, is that governments are going to come after Bitcoin. Um, I mean, there is there is a kind of narrative out there which I think a lot of people subscribe to, uh, which is that you know governments are kind of financially incentivized to be friendly to Bitcoin because you know let's say the American government, for instance, says, okay, we're we're going to be um, we're going to ban Bitcoin, that, that, that all of that uh, economic activity is going to move to, you know, potentially one of its rivals like China or whatever, or, or maybe Europe or, or any, anywhere else really, and that, and that they're going to be kind of economically um, disincentivized to make that kind of decision. Um, personally, I think that um, that is a, a kind of misunderstanding of uh, governments. I mean, this is, Bitcoin is a, a kind of death... It, it's, it's, it's death knocking at government's doors. And I don't think that governments are going to just uh, stand by right. and let it happen. Um, no matter how incentivized they are to be a first mover, I actually am, I'm, first of all, I'm unconvinced whether any government will be a first mover on this, um, right. unless it's one of America's enemies. The, the, only, yeah. Um, yeah. the only country I can see being a first mover on this is someone like Iran, um, but, you know, or something like that, because they their arrival of America. And then what's the first thing that's going to happen once, you know, Iran accepts Bitcoin as a national currency, America bans it. Right. Um, yeah. And, and then, then, and then, yeah. It's easy to make out Bitcoiners as terrorists and this thing is not a good, it's financing, you know, an enemy and it's easy to ban at that point. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that, that that's what I imagine is going to happen. What I imagine will happen is that, um, you know, the only, the only countries which, will actually uh, are currently incentivized to use bitcoin are the ones which want to kind of usurp american um hegemony in the world so it's going to be someone like iran or you know maybe maybe china or russia and at that point america bans it and then if america bans it the whole of europe's going to ban it and australia's going to ban it and new zealand's going to ban it and canada's going to ban it and you know and south korea's going to ban it and japan's going to ban it and i think that america will kind of set off a series of bans around the world because everyone will essentially follow America's lead on it as they, as they generally do when it comes to kind of these like global, uh, global issues or if America deems someone to be a terrorist, the whole world deems them to be a terrorist. And um, so I think that that will happen. And the reason I think it will happen is because, um, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, if you're a first mover on Bitcoin and you've got this huge advantage, what if you convert your reserves to Bitcoin, you know, and then, uh, with its growth, you have so many, many more reserves, et cetera. But you know, right now they have unlimited money, money uh, right. unlimited ability to print money. That is not something right. they're gonna give up. That's like, that's like saying, would you rather you know, have unlimited money or would you rather have a you know, million dollars? I mean, it, you, you, unlimited money is always more than the money you're gonna make from Bitcoin gains. Um, so in my view, uh, the American government or really any government, they are not gonna give up the power to print money because that that is ultimately at the root of all government power is a monopoly over money production 
So I think that the state government's going to get get on board. Um, you know, that it's like signing their own death warrant. Okay, maybe they'll make a lot of money in the meantime, but they're going to die in the long term, and that's just not um, how governments are going to operate, in my view. So I think that the bans are going to come, and I think that you know exchanges will either be banned or they will be kind of regulated into. Um, submission in a sense whereby you know for instance people won't be able to hold their own coins maybe you can make an investment but the exchange holds the funds and then the government can essentially fiatize uh, bitcoin in some way once that happens so i think that this movement's going to go underground at some point um but that's okay i mean that that's just going to be in my view a part of bitcoin's journey is that you know at some point governments are going to turn overtly hostile and we're going to have to take the movement underground and we're going to have to, you know, use um, other privacy tools and we're going to have to use decentralized exchanges and and whatever tools are at our disposal to try and fight against that. And I still think Bitcoin will win. Um, but I just think that this idea that the government's just going to sit back and let us kind of ride this wave to the moon and all get rich and, you know, happily live in a kind of Austrian economic system and they have the power <laughs> to just print money and, and you know, and, and have an inflation tax. I think that that idea, um, I think that people are dreaming if they think that. Right. And I, I feel like, you know, if the government and the education and the, the social media people, they all paint the narrative that, um, you know, Bitcoin's not a good thing. Uh-huh and the government bans it, you know, like th- this is some serious FUD. So what, what do we do? We create our Mastodon account, you know, make sure we have that booted up and run a node. Is there, besides hodling on and keep on learning, you know, is there anything else we, we can be doing for Bitcoin or like, or how do you address this? You know, because this is serious right yeah i mean i think that i think that first of all people have got to take their take their keys off exchanges um yeah uh, that's the first thing everyone hold their own keys i think that we should be uh looking more at decentralized exchanges and things like that at the moment um there was a point where they've been talked about a lot i kind of feel like a bit more recently it's not been talked so much about but i think that you know certainly like there are decentralized exchanges out there and they're gaining uh a bit more traction and the technology is improving like there wasn't any decentralized exchanges that i'm aware of when i first got in and now there's like quite a few there's probably at least five or six that i know off the top of my head so um yeah there uh you know that's a good tool i think that definitely when it comes to um communication right now it's great that we can all just communicate on twitter but if um if the government bans bitcoin then we're not going to be able to talk about it on twitter and right. that, you know you're gonna like it's it's gonna i mean it's arguable to say whether that will necessarily happen because right now you could for instance talk about drugs on twitter and drugs are illegal but um yeah. you know who knows and right. uh, like twitter censorship has definitely stepped up a lot recently and i i don't think that we can rely on it forever to be a good communication platform so i think that we should be starting to diversify into things like uh mastodon and things like that which are quite good for um more a more decentralized communication network running your own node is obviously a really important one um but i think that really um the most important thing is that is that 
you know, we recognize that this um, could, and in my opinion, likely will happen at some point, that we are going to really go to war with the state because uh, the state does not give up power easily. And I think that if we give everyone the kind of narrative that the government's never going to ban Bitcoin, it's all going to be great. And, you know, because Michael Saylor has is, got all this money in Bitcoin, he's, you know, on the stock exchange, et cetera. Like the idea that that is going to insulate us, it might insulate us to a degree, but it's not going to stop this uh, eventual um, battle from happening, in my view. So I think the most important thing is that Bitcoiners are aware of it, that are aware that it's going to... Um, that it, it, at least it could happen and to kind of prepare themselves mentally for it because the government will use every single tool and it will use every single bit of propaganda that it can to try and stop this thing. And we have to be prepared to kind of fight against it. I think we've done a pretty good job um, so far, but, you know, I mean, I mean, I was thinking recently, for instance, just trying to, trying to kind of play this out in my, in my head. Like if I was a government, what would I do? what I would probably do is I would kind of take a snapshot of the, of the Bitcoin blockchain and I would say, okay, um, this is how much Bitcoin was worth at the point the snapshot was chained. It was, uh, was taken. I would ban Bitcoin. And then a few days later or whatever, maybe the very next day I'd say, Hey, we'll buy all of this Bitcoin at you at the price that it was at the snapshot because they can print as much money as they want. By this point they banned it. So it's lost, you know, 90, 95% of its value, let's say. And the, right. the government's taken a snapshot and they say, we'll pay you for your Bitcoin at the price it was at the snapshot because, you know, we're really nice uh, governments and, you know, uh, we care about the fact that we've done this and it used to be legal and it's not really fair that you'll, you've lost all this money. So, so we'll pay you for what the price was at the snapshot, right? Like how many Bitcoiners at that point would, would give up their keys? How many of them would say, oh, well, you know, this might never come back. You know, it's at a, it's a 5% of its value. So I might as well just take the money and get rich now. You know, like that—that that is something a government could do. That actually could happen, and that would be a great tool for them because they could. I mean, I don't like. I, I've kind of lost track right now of of exactly what the Bitcoin market cap is, but it's less than a trillion. I mean, the government, the the U.S. government printed what was it like at least six trillion um, in like last last summer. So it would be nothing for them to do something like that. That would be that would be pocket change for a government to try and essentially um, cripple a network like Bitcoin. And once right. so many people give up, if, if a lot of people did that, it, you know, it's almost like a kind of prisoner's dilemma situation. If a lot of people said, okay, I'm going to do that because my Bitcoin is never coming back um, to, to its previous value. So I might as well just like take the money from the, that the government's offering me for it. Like we're pretty screwed uh, if a lot of people were to take that um, that offer. So we have to be prepared not to be kind of tempted by the devil because the devil, in my view, is going to tempt us because they're going to try, you know, they, they have no way of stopping this other than using um, deceptive kind of tactics, propaganda, um, and kind of heavy handedness. But at, the, at the core, Bitcoin has all the tools it needs to defend itself against state level attacks. It's just a matter of us kind of sticking to our guns on it really and, and being prepared to take this fight to the end right and personally i think one of the more important things we can do is as bitcoiners help other newer bitcoiners like i have family and friends starting to look into bitcoin um because of the recent run-up and kind of guiding them to good resources and learning about um, the Bitcoin ethos, you know, listening to podcasts like Tales from the Crypt or 
you know, the Stefan Levera podcast, like recommending these types of resources can be a really good thing to do um, or creating them yourself because, you know, if Bitcoin goes to 288K, like Plan B says, or 500K by December, and then Iran adopts the currency and the government bans it, by then, you know, there's going to be so much retail investment. It's hard to imagine that, you know, most people don't take the government's offer or don't surrender their coins or, you know, that the, the network doesn't cripple without some at uh involvement and like making sure that doesn't happen do you do you think this like active approach to bitcoin is important like do you show to your friends and and i see your presence on twitter is great you know i've been following it for a long time i love your tweets you know it's helped me learn as a bitcoiner you know or or do you think like that Anon, you know, don't talk about it to friends, you know, uh, pretend like you don't own Bitcoin so the government doesn't know, put it through CoinJoin, you know, which one's the right response when you're thinking about, you know, what's best for myself, what's best for the network, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, um, yeah, getting, getting people into Bitcoin is an important thing because the more people that we have uh, in Bitcoin, the more people are going to kind of reject um, government intervention in that sense. So I think that it is important to try and get people on board. But I also think that it's important to get people um, on board with the philosophy as well. So like you said, sending articles and podcasts and things like that is super important because, um, you know, just getting in and thinking that this is just an investment. Um, you know, it's like, you know, I have investments in certain stocks. And if the government suddenly ban the stock, I'm not going to necessarily say, hey, okay, I'm really gutted about this. I'm never going to vote for this government or, you know, I'm going to kind of refuse to comply or whatever. I just thought, okay, the stock's probably done something bad and, uh, or the company, sorry, and, and okay, I'll just accept it. Whereas, whereas with, with Bitcoin, what we need is for people to, to kind of um, understand truly what it is that we're actually grappling with here and, and the, its potential for like complete, um, like world-changing revolution. Um, and if we can get people to understand it from that philosophical side, then, you know, we've got much more kind of a social layer that's going to be willing to defend the network. I do think that, um, you know, being anonymous is, is important as well. Uh, like, you know, that's obviously why I'm anonymous and you're anonymous. And I, I think that it is, um, I think that that's a really, I, I like the fact that a lot of these new accounts as well are, are, are anonymous right. because, um, you know, that, I mean, I do remember there being a lot of uh, Anon accounts um, like back in 2016, but certainly there's, uh, there's a lot of more of them now and they're popping up every day. And I think that's super important because, you know, the important thing to remember with Bitcoin is that you are always liable to a $5 wrench attack. <laughs> I right. mean, you know, some, some, yeah. you know if, you, if someone knows that you own Bitcoin, um, you know, they can come and it doesn't matter how good your security is and how, you know, smart you've been with, oh, okay, I've got a, uh, you know, I've got some kind, I've got a cold card and, uh, and this, that and the other, and it's in a safe and whatever. And someone can just, you know, they can just go up and say, give me your stuff or I'm going to kill you. And you go and open your safe and you put your password into your cold card and you give them new coins. And you've basically all of that security for absolutely nothing. If someone knows your kind of physical identity and knows where you live and whatever. So I think that being anonymous is really important. And, um, you know, it's, it, 
I mean, it is talked about, but I think that it's, it can never be overemphasized that that is an important um, thing to do. And also just your ability to, to kind of speak on these, on these issues. Um, I think that being anonymous allow, like affords you a freedom that, you know, having it tied to your identity doesn't necessarily always all the time. Um, yeah. But yeah, so certainly your, your physical security, like, you know, people cannot, they're not going to, they're not going to be able to break your, uh, the encryption to get your money. Um, but they can break you to get you to give them your money. So the important, so I think that being like anonymous is a really key feature. And, you know, I mean, you think about, for instance, like billionaires now who are, who are walking around, if you're a billionaire, um, you know, either your money's, you know, safely in a bank and someone can't just actually physically just kind of come and take it from you in that sense. Um, or you've got bodyguards or whatever, you're going to need some kind of security, but you know, in the Bitcoin, in, in, in the, in the post hyper Bitcoinization world, um, what's going to be absolutely awesome is that you can you can be just walking around uh, in you know shorts and flip flops somewhere, and you can you know potentially have uh, you know nobody knows who you are and nobody pays any attention to you, but you potentially got um, billions worth of Bitcoin, uh, and no right. one would know any difference. I mean that's very difficult. If you're a billionaire in the in the kind of fiat world everyone knows who you are um you know because you right. have you have in some way you know even if you've you've done it you know you maybe you're not a big celebrity or whatever, and you've done it through like drug dealing or whatever people still know who you are people still know okay that guy's got money bitcoin has a potential right. to, to change that so that nobody has any idea who is holding value and that is a really really good thing that's a super important thing for um our ability to kind of defend our private property right and the fact that you can memorize your 24 words and just get on a plane and take your, um, you know, your time and your money that you've worked for with you without, you know, the same limitations that come with the existing system. That's one of the more exciting things to me. Um, yeah, that, that, that is an absolute trip, honestly. Like it's, um, it's, it, it just blows my mind every time I, I think about it, just that idea. I mean, you know, you think about right. people, for instance, who were living under kind of authoritarian authoritarian communist regimes and things who, when they had to leave the country, they had to leave everything behind. You know, they had to leave the house behind. They had to leave their, you know, their, their belongings and, you know, their gold. They couldn't take their gold on a, on a plane and get out of the country. But, you know, now you don't even need any of that. You can, you can just walk out, you can walk out with your, um, with your 24 wood, uh, mnemonic seed in your head and that's it like your wealth is preserved with you and yeah it, it's pretty amazing like it truly is revolutionary it is. yeah it just gives me chills to think about you know <laughs> that's yeah. so crazy um i i want to be respectful of your time uh but do you have time for one more question yeah yeah sure Okay, sweet. Uh, real fast. Um, something I struggle with personally is um, shilling Bitcoin to my friends or even like my family. Um, do, do you have a concise way that you talk about Bitcoin to people who are asking you and are interested about it? Because I, I feel like there's so many narratives, you know, the self-sovereign, hard money, uh, like yeah There's i mean so many I th narratives i think um i think the hard money narrative is the most important thing i i, I don't really even talk about it anymore as an investment I, I used to talk about it as an investment um but now i talk about it more as just essentially a way to hedge against inflation 
and uh, you know, I essentially describe. I think the digital digital gold narrative is is really useful. Um, you know, just that this is essentially like a digital version of gold that you can own a part of this. I, I often describe it as a digital kind of pie in the sky. Like you've got a digital pie which exists, which everyone can kind of buy a piece of, and it's not getting uh, any bigger. And that essentially, you can have your piece of this pie, and your your wealth will be preserved, but it's not physical. That's often how I kind of like describe it in most simple terms. Uh, I think I can't remember who it was who came up with the term. It's, it's funny that this only happened recently, but someone came up with the term savings technology. And I'd not heard that at all until 2020. And it's, it's funny how as soon as that, as soon as I heard that term, I was like, wow, that is, that is the perfect way to describe it. I'm surprised that, that hasn't been a big part of the narrative before now. But really, that's what it is. You know, this is something which allows you to take your monetary value put it into a network where it can't be inflated and then the government can print all the money they want and it's not going to um it's not going to change the amount of value you have on that network in fact your fiat value is going to go up relative um but the value on that network remains the same you if you've bought 0.1 bitcoin it stays as 0.1 bitcoin and is that's not going to change and there is only a finite amount um that narrative i think is is um getting more and more compelling as central banks um continue to um, debase currency and as as interest rates go negative and everything it's just it's just more and more obvious um that that narrative holds weight so yeah i think that's the that's the way that i tend to get people in i i, I generally have a couple of articles that i'll that i'll send to them um just to kind of prime them on what bitcoin really is for people who are a bit more you know who, who want to know and um and yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, some people kind of like want to kind of incentivize their friends or really kind of give them the, the hard sell. I do think that there's a there's definitely a place for that. And I, for instance, you know, for instance, I, I can't remember who it was um, who I heard say, say this recently, but it was about uh, how to, uh, you know, if you've got a friend who's thinking about buying, um, you know, you could, oh, I know who it was. It was um, relevant Peter Schiff. And yeah, uh, he yeah. was saying on this, and he was saying that you know when when his friends want to buy, and then they're like, oh, I'm not sure, you know, it's quite volatile. This that and the other. He says like, look, you buy it, and then if it's down a year from now, um, if it's down, <laughs> then I'll buy it off you at the original price. So it's completely risk free for you. So you buy it today, and if it's down a year from now, I'll, I'll buy it at the original price. So you've got literally no risk. <laughs> but if it's gone up, then you can keep the upside. That's a great. That's a great um, thing to do. Uh, another thing that I do yeah. is like if, if people are buying and I give them my um, my kind of referral code for an exchange. So they'll first of all get, you know, $10 or whatever of, of free Bitcoin when they make a purchase. But I'll also send them my side. So I'll say, hey, you buy it. Like if you're going to buy $100, you're going to get 120 because you're going to get your referral. I'm going to send you immediately my referral straight into that wallet. So you've got my the amount I've been referred as well. Because for me, you know, like I've, I've you know, I've, I've accumulated a lot and, you know, I've, certainly more than these, these people who are, who are coming in from, from zero and you know it doesn't right. really concern me doing that i would rather that person has you know 120 dollars they've only paid 100 for and then they can sustain you know at least a kind of 20 percent drop for instance um and they're not going to be down on the value and then they might still continue to hodl that is a right. better outcome than me kind of keeping my you know 10 dollar referral on that person being more liable to being down in their investment and freaking out and selling so I think that yeah. we have the ability between us to kind of, you know, pad out the volatility for our kind of friends and family that we're trying to orange pill. And, um, 
that can be just a, a useful thing to do. But obviously, you know, it depends where you're at and, you know, and how much they're wanting to invest and how, how kind of um, easy they are to kind of persuade, et cetera. It's got to be an independent decision, but that's, that's kind of my route. Okay, sweet. Yeah, the savings technology and the other stuff you mentioned are really good things to keep in mind. Um, I'd just like to thank you so much, you know, for your Twitter. I've been following it for a long time. It's really helped me um, progress as a Bitcoiner. And then also for this conversation, I was so excited to see you reach out. And I've learned so much. It really helped me to talk to through these things. And I hope if anybody listens to this, they can get some value too. So just thank you so much. Yeah, th thanks to you as well. It's been a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. All right. Uh, see you later, man. Okay, see you.